going to be in Mark chapter 15 today. You can start turning there. Mark 15, 1 through 20. Have you ever, have you ever experienced envy? Envy, of course you have. It's the green-eyed monster. Envy, not just that you want something you don't have and you order it on Amazon, but you want something you can't get because it's not yours. It belongs to another I don't just want this thing, I, I really want you to also not have it anymore. I don't just want to have this promotion, I want my boss to be fired because he's an idiot, he doesn't deserve it anymore. I don't just want me to be in this certain life stage, I actually want you who I've been watching to be stripped of it because you're not doing the good things I would be doing with it if I had it. I don't just want to have, it's not enough for me to have what you have, I want you to be deprived of it. And actually, it wouldn't be the worst thing if you got hurt in the process. Actually, it would feel really good if you got hurt in the process. If you were just out of the picture altogether and I have what I want. This is envy. It's pretty gross. We don't like to feel it, but it bubbles up sometimes, right? We've all experienced it. It's common in our greatest love stories. It's also strong in politics and power. And unfortunately, I am not completely ignorant to the fact that two days ago was January 6th, and in the text this morning is the word insurrection, and they're just appearing together, and so this is me acknowledging this in the introduction of the sermon, because I'm not going to use it as an illustration, I just think it would be a distraction, we wouldn't receive it all the same way, so I'm acknowledging that, I'm, I'm moving on from it. But also, in the news this week, I saw that, uh, that there's a book out called Spare by Prince Harry of, of England, and I haven't read it, I'm not planning on it, I don't know much about it, but it seems like the synopsis is that being the second-born son of the king is not nearly as desirable as being the first-born son of the king because you don't get to be king. The firstborn gets to be king with all the power and the glory and, and majesty of that. But the secondborn is not the heir. He's the spare. He doesn't get those things. And I don't know uh, Prince Harry. I don't know if this is envy, but it would check out if it was, right? Standing in between me and what I want is another person. There's no real good option for me to get it. Maybe that's oversimplifying. I don't know. But I'm as out of my element with British royalty as I am with American politics. But while we might well be all over the map politically, I think we share the common experience of knowing that when we or our candidate is not in power, we don't just want to be in power. We want the other person to be stripped of power and laughed at in shame along the way. Envy says there are two options. I can take what I want or I can be miserable without it. Both are prison cells. If I kill the heir and take the crown for myself, I will end up in jail, probably a prison cell in this world, and if not, in a prison cell called guilt, where I know what I did was wrong. I should not slander and steal. I should not hurt and hate my neighbor. But to do nothing is to live in a prison cell called envy, right? Where these chains and walls are keeping me from getting what I truly want, what will truly satisfy me. That's what Envy says, there are two options. It seems true, seems right, but is it? If there were a third option, that would not be true, and the truth would set us free. Let's stand together now for the reading of God's holy word in Mark 15. Mark 15, 1 through 20. And as soon as it was morning, the chief priests held a consultation with the elders and scribes and the whole council, and they bound Jesus and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate. And Pilate asked him, are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him, you have said so. And the chief priest accused him of many things. And Pilate again asked him, have you no answer to make? See how many charges they bring against you. But Jesus made no further answer, so that Pilate was amazed. 
Now at the feast, he used to release for them one prisoner for whom they asked, and among the rebels in prison who had committed murder in the insurrection, there was a man called Barabbas. And the crowd came up and began to ask Pilate to do as he usually did for them. And he answered them, saying, Do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? For he perceived that it was out of envy that the chief priests had delivered him up. But the chief priests stirred up the crowd to have him release for them Barabbas instead. And Pilate again said to them, Then what shall I do with the man you call the king of the Jews? And they cried out again, Crucify him! And Pilate said to them, Why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, Crucify him! So Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, released for them Barabbas. And having scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. And the soldiers led him away inside the palace, that is, the governor's headquarters, and they called together the whole battalion, and they clothed him in a purple cloak, and twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on him, and they began to salute him, Hail, King of the Jews! And they were striking his head with a reed, and spitting on him, and kneeling down in homage to him. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the purple cloak, and put his own clothes on him, and they led him out to crucify him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Bountiful Lord, the unfolding of your word gives light. It imparts understanding to the simple. We open our mouth and we pant because we long for your commandments. Turn to us and be gracious to us as is your way with those who love your name. Help us sit at the feet of the one thing needed, beholding wondrous things. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Please be seated. Jesus is the rejected true king who sets us free. Jesus is the rejected true king who sets us free. That's what Jesus claims, and we confess it here every week. So what are you going to do with that? That's really the application of this text, a sneak peek. So let's be considering if that's true throughout this sermon. Is Jesus the true king who sets us free? Is he the king, the Christ? Did you notice Jesus in the passage this morning? He didn't play a very active part. He only said four words. He's mostly treated like an object, really. He's bound and passed around. He's beaten with whips and with words. He's stripped of his life as flippantly as his clothes. And I know that many of us feel that we can relate in some way, and we can find comfort here in knowing that Jesus relates to us. He can sympathize with physical pain and with relational rejection. That's true, and you should take comfort in that. But I'd like us to enter into this text, not first in Jesus' shoes, but our own. We'll look at the end, how we walk in his steps, but let's first let Jesus be the hero of this story. That's usually the best way to read the Bible. So let's just let Jesus be the king and not us, and let's see how we treat him and how he treats us. A decision is made in this text, a decision to reject the king's identity, and this decision is made to crucify Jesus, and like most weighty decisions, it's both quite simple in nature, yet, yet, yet layered with complexity. There's three main characters in this decision. The priests, led by the high priest, including all the elders and the scribes who made up the Sanhedrin, were the ruling council of the Jews in Israel. There's Pontius Pilate, who was the Roman governor of Judea at this time, and there are the people, or the crowd, who were likely largely made up of Jews, leaders, and lay. You see them throughout the Gospel of Mark. It might not always be the same people person for person, but it's the same crowd as Mark refers to them as a character throughout his Gospel. And so the setting of this decision is Jerusalem, the time of Passover feast. And in this setting, this setting is the only reason that all these characters come together. The Jewish people have come to Jerusalem to feast on their Passover lamb, commemorating when God delivered his people from slavery in Egypt. Those who listen to God's instructions... Back in the Exodus, 
They killed an innocent lamb and spread its blood on the doorposts of their house, and God sent the angel of death to kill the firstborn sons of the Egyptians. But the angel of death passed over the homes with the lamb's blood on the doorposts, and God's people, who followed his instructions, walked out through those doorposts, out through the Red Sea, out of bondage, into the freedom of worshiping God, being with God in the wilderness on the way to the promised land where God would always be with his people. Now, Pilate is actually in town for Passover as well to try and keep the peace, because at this time, Israel is not an entirely free nation. They are part of the Roman Empire. Tiberius Caesar is the emperor, and he's appointed various prefects, like Pontius Pilate, to rule over different regions in order to keep Caesar's people submissive and peaceful. So Pilate does not normally live in Jerusalem, but he's here during the Passover feast, because as you can imagine, this nation Israel gets a little restless during this feast of deliverance. They're remembering being set free from Pharaoh. They start wanting to be set free from Caesar. It's a time when occasionally uprisings would come, and so Pilate is there. So that's the background. Now we're getting into the text, 1 through 15, the verses here, this decision. So the, the characters in the setting, the things go very quickly here. They make this decision very quickly. As soon as it was morning, the whole council of priests and leaders, they've come to their decision that Jesus is condemned to death for blasphemy. He has claimed to be God. Only God that can forgive sins. They said, are you the son of God? You have said so. Jesus said, only God can work to help and heal people on the Sabbath, they say. What are you, Lord of the Sabbath? You say so, Jesus says. Are you the Christ, son of the blessed? I am, he said in last week's text. And he rests his case. No defense is needed. They got it right. They said so. The good confession is in their mouths and Jesus is in their hands. And they say, no, you're not God. This is blasphemy. And in the Old Testament, when someone was guilty of blasphemy, they would take them out and stone them. But the priests don't lead Jesus away to stone him. They lead him away and hand him over to Pilate. Because at this time, Israel as a nation was not free to put people to death. The Roman Empire had stripped them of this power. Only Rome, and in this case Pilate, can officially and legally condemn someone to death. So they bring Jesus to Pilate, who is likely staying in a palace, fortress type of thing. And the priests and the people are outside, so they won't become ceremoniously unclean by going under the roof of a Gentile during the feast. Jesus is probably inside with the prisoners and the guards, and Pilate seems to be able to talk to both of them. There's some sort of balcony or courtyard or something, and then Pilate questions Jesus. He says, are you the king of the Jews? Or maybe more specifically, you are the king of the Jews? Instead of the priest saying he's guilty of blasphemy, by claiming he's the son of God, they handed him over saying he's claimed to be the king of the Jews, which would be treason claiming to be king of the Jews, which is essentially the same thing, but it's more likely to get Pilate's attention. He's not going to execute someone for a religious crime, but he would need to see a threat to the empire. So Pilate questions him, and the priests continue to heed accusations about who he is and is not, but Jesus gives no answer except this, you have said so, or you are saying so. You, Pontius Pilate, the real life in our history books, in the creed, Pontius Pilate, we all agree his feet were on this earth. He has the knowledge that Jesus is king, the Christ. It's coming out of his lips. So now what? Jesus is putting the claim in Pilate's mouth and saying, you say, so now what? What are you going to do with me, the king, the Christ? Pilate is amazed that Jesus isn't defending himself Further, Pilate in this situation appears to have the authority to give and take life. So Jesus' silence is perplexing and piquing his interest, but ultimately Pilate decides he doesn't really see any guilt in Jesus. He doesn't see him as any real threat to Caesar. He's innocent of treason. Pilate actually tries to release him, and he has a custom at this time with the people at Passover that he would release one guilty prisoner. And this was probably something he did to try and keep the Jewish people from revolting, to quell the rebellious spirit at the feast. So he goes to the people, the crowd that is gathering, and he says, do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? He knows that the priests have handed him over out of envy. They want to be the king of the Jews. If he's the king of the Jews, they have to submit to him. 
But the people seem to like him, so he's going to try and work around the priest by releasing Jesus to the people. It's a clever maneuver by Pilate, but the priests have anticipated, and they've been stirring up the people to say, no, we want Barabbas released at this Passover feast instead. Barabbas is a notorious known criminal. He's a rebel who fought in a revolt, the insurrection against the Roman authorities on behalf of the Jews. At some point in this uprising, he killed someone. We don't know who, but he's guilty of it. He's a fighter. Pilate seems unprepared for this, and he answers back, Then what shall I do with the man you call the king of the Jews? And they cried out again, Crucify him. Pilate said to them, Why? What evil has he done? But they don't answer. They shouted all the more, Crucify him. So Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, released for them Barabbas, and having scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. So that's what happened. What, what just happened? As a six-year-old at my dinner table commented this past week, wait, so did Pilate not want to kill Jesus? It's a fair question. What just happened here? The priests are supposed to be leading God's people under God, but they have to go to a Roman governor to enact justice. That's odd. And then when the Roman governor isn't going to judge how they want, they go to the people, and the people somehow force Pilate's hand. It's all mixed up and woven together. In a sense, it's true. It's so entangled that they all have the power and opportunity to do the right thing and stop Jesus from being crucified. But while they're all woven together in the complexity of culpability, they're actually much more simply and plainly united in their outright rejection of Jesus being the true king. Consider it this way. The priests say that Jesus is not the king of the Jews, the son of God. He's not that. So they declare him guilty of blasphemy. Pilate declares that Jesus is not the king of the Jews. He's not a threat to Caesar. I'm the king of the Jews, Pilate says. Caesar is the king of the Jews. Jesus is not a threat. So he declares him innocent of treason. And the people, the people who a week earlier cried out at the triumphal entry, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. They said he was their king. But now the people say that Jesus is not the king of the Jews, son of David, Messiah, Christ. They see him weak and bound, holding back his tongue and holding back the sword. They declare him incompetent of delivering what they want. Barabbas is the revolutionary hero they desire. They are all united in plainly rejecting Jesus as the true king, the king of the Jews, the Christ, son of God, king of kings, Messiah. They all have it in their mouth and they say no. And the solution is amazingly simple too. Jesus must die. Barabbas must go free. They all agree. This might seem like a strange exchange, but it checks out. The people get a revolutionary who will fight for them to obtain power. The priests get the threat to their power removed. Jesus is crucified. Pilate gets the threat to his power removed. The riot is put out because the people get the revolutionary they want who will fight to get them power. See, they're all getting what they want here in their own way. They all get to say, Jesus is not the king of the Jews because I'm the king of the Jews. I should be in charge here. They all reject the presence of the king to be in the place of the king. And out pops Barabbas. Now, who is he? For some reason, I always used to think of Barabbas as this foaming-at-the-mouth psychopath, serial killer type guy. I don't know if you did, but we don't quite get that picture. You might call that an alternate picture, alternate to the truth. It seems true, but it doesn't quite hold up against God's word because in the Bible we're told... Uh, three things specifically about Barabbas. He's a rebel, he's a murderer, and he's a robber. So if that's all we know of Barabbas, how do, what do we actually know about him? Well, he's a man who takes what isn't 
his, right? He's a man who takes what he wants, even if it isn't his. He's a robber, literally taking things that aren't his. He's a murderer, taking life from another person, which wasn't his to take, and he's a rebel who has tried to take power and authority from those over him. He's a man who takes what isn't his to take, and his name actually means son of the father, bar Abba, son of the father. And so you get this picture of Barabbas being a rebel son of the father, almost like a son who has tried to kill his father to take his inheritance. A rebel son of the father who takes what he wants when he wants it. And do you see how he represents all the characters involved here? Do you see why he is the solution? They reject Jesus. He is not the image of the God they want. Jesus is not. Jesus is not the son of the father as they see the father. But here is Barabbas, a man who takes what isn't his. He's the real son of the father. They say Jesus is a fraud. See, in their vision, a king isn't someone who submits to another's will. A king is someone who throws it off, asserts his own. A king doesn't receive his lot in life. He takes what he wants. Kings don't lay down their lives. They take lives. They reject Jesus and release Barabbas. Moving on now to verses 16 to 20, the display of rejecting the king himself. After all this, Jesus is condemned to crucifixion. He first has him scourged or flogged, which you might see as a note in your Bible. It's a formal judicial punishment of laying a man on the ground or against a post, stripped naked or almost naked, and then severely beaten with a whip made out of several lines ending with bone or metal. It would rip open someone's flesh. Oftentimes, people's bones or organs would be exposed after this. Some people actually died reportedly simply from this scourging or this flogging. It's just a single word here because you would know that it means that. This next scene is different than that. He's delivered over to the Roman soldiers who were in charge of carrying out the execution and the scourging, and they take Jesus inside the palace fortress where Pilate was staying, and they they mock him like a cat playing with a mouse. They have a dead man walking. They just kind of do whatever they want to do. They're men with borrowed authority. They're under authority. They're not involved in deciding Jesus' fate. They just carry it out and decide to have some fun with this joke of a king. I think Mark actually structures this quite similar to verses 1 through 15. It starts out with um, Jesus being bound and and led away, and the whole council and the the whole battalion comes together. It both ends with Jesus being delivered to be crucified, Jesus led away to be crucified, and in between, you have him mockingly called the king of the Jews, and then various mockings and accusations and beatings surround it. I think it's displaying what has just happened in this decision in some way. It really happened, but it's it's a picture we have at the end of this that kind of sums it up. The, The soldiers in the palace, they come together. They call all their buddies. They dress up Jesus in purple, which was only available to wealthy people because it needed a dye that came from a certain type of shellfish that was hard to find in the seas and everything. And, and being rare, it was expensive. Royals wore it, elites only. If Jesus were a king in this world, he'd be wearing purple. They dress him up. The image of their god, Caesar, they crown him. They hail him as they would Caesar. They pretend to kneel before him like he's their king, but it's fake. They gave him a reed and a scepter, but they're hitting him with it. They're spitting on him. It's all a joke. He's nothing compared to Caesar. They compare him to the king of this world, and he looks like a joke. He doesn't measure up. He doesn't deliver. He's too weak. He could never be a true king. And do you see how we all do this? How we all participate in this mockery? In our natural state, before some of us were saved and changed by the Spirit, we all rejected Jesus' role as king and participated in mocking his lordship in the world. The soldiers do exactly what Pilate and the priests and the people do because all humans do this. Adam and Eve are in the garden. God generously says, you may surely eat 
of every tree in the garden but one. And Satan whispers, God won't let you eat of any tree in the garden? Oh, oh, just, just one, but you can't even touch it? Well, you know why, right? Because if you eat it, you'll be just like God. Wouldn't that be amazing? Not just to be with God, not just to be in the image of God, but to be like God himself, knowing all things, and God won't let you have it. He doesn't want you to have it. You're going to have to take it for yourself. So the serpent helps them see it as good for food and a delight to the eyes and desired to be wise. And so they take what isn't theirs. He helps them see that they want it and that God is in between them and what they want. So they push him out of the way. They spit the word of God out of their mouth to make room for the fruit. Rebel sons of the father, Barabbas, taking what he wants. We reject Jesus the King, Son of God, when we say that he is not very good at this whole being God thing, I'm going to snatch the scepter out of your hand and show you how it's done. Jesus, the King, I spit that right back in your face. You think you know what I should do with my money? You say to beware of riches, the money is the root of all kinds of evil. I'll spit that word right out and scrap to make as much money as I can, however I can. You say you know how I should use my body, how I should use sex. I'll spit that word right out of my mouth and do what I want. You don't know how to satisfy me. You think you can tell me how to rest? You think you can tell me how to use authority? You think you can tell me how to raise my kids? You think you can tell me how to suffer? No. What gives you the right? I know what I want. I want to be the one who gets to say, and so I'm going to take it. You're a joke of a king. I tried. I put you in the royal robes of this world, and you just looked pathetic. You can't give me what I want. You're in between me and what I want, so get out of the way. Aren't we all just like Adam, just like Barabbas, rebel sons of the Father? And now we're at the end of the text. Is there any good news here? The deliverance of the sons, point three. Is there any good news at the end? Sometimes... We have to make it to the end of the scene of the story to see the point it was making. It's why we write books and then read them to the end. So what's changed at the end of this story? Pilate, priests, people, they're largely the same. They kind of got what they want. Barabbas is released. That's changed. We'll talk about it. But what about Jesus? What does he have at the end? I actually, I think he has two physical objects at the end of verse 20 that he didn't have in verse 1. And they go along with, he came in with a death sentence, but he's leaving with not just death, but crucifixion. The, the soldiers lead him out to crucify him. He's delivered into their hands by Pilate, but they're leading him out. I think they're on the streets. They're heading toward the hill. I think he has a cross beam here. The very next verse says they have to get someone else to carry it. I think Jesus has his cross beam. It's, it's at least his possession, if not on his back. And the second object, well, the soldiers, <clears throat> they put a purple cloak on him. That's what it says. It says very specifically, they put the purple cloak on him, and they took the purple cloak off of him. It says they twisted or wove together a crown of thorns, and they put it on him. But it doesn't, it doesn't say they took it off, and neither do the other accounts, despite all the other details given. And it seems like we have a picture here of Jesus wearing a crown of thorns and carrying a cross of wood. And this is significant because Deuteronomy 21, 23 says, anyone hung on a tree is under God's curse. Curse. Remember back in, in Genesis 3, 17 and 18, an envious trio has conspired against the Lord and the Lord lays down a curse on them all. He says this, because you have listened to the voice of your wife, and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. 
Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat it, eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field by the sweat of your face. You shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken. For you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Jesus was condemned by the priests at the beginning of this, but he didn't yet have a sentence because the priests' hands were tied by the Roman government. So Jesus is bound and passed around until finally the priests, Pilate, and the people weave together a sentence of death by crucifixion, declared guilty for a religious crime. He is to pay a Roman death requested by the people, which is cursed by God. They deliver him to the soldiers who unknowingly weave together a crown of the curse to place on Jesus' head. They are probably just trying to inflict physical pain, and doubtless they did. But consider the fullness of this curse in Genesis or Galatians 3. Galatians 3. For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse, for it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. But then... Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us, for it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. Adam and Eve did not listen to the word of the Lord, the commandments. Adam listened to Eve. Eve listened to the serpent. The serpent just made up a lie. Nobody listened to God, so they are cursed. And ever since then, God has spoken more and more in his law, and we don't listen, we covet, we steal, we hurt and hate our neighbors. We have other gods before God. We take what we want. We inherited a cursed life, and we have earned in it a cursed death. And the curse in its entirety is placed on Jesus' head. He, as the representative for all humanity, takes it on himself. The curse is the crown on his head and the burden on his back. It is pinned to him. He is pinned to it. It's all on him. And what a terrible tragedy, right? This weak, poor, innocent teacher accidentally get caught, gets caught up in a power struggle in Jerusalem at the time of the Roman Empire, and he winds up bearing God's curse for humanity. That's not quite right, is it? It seems a little true, but it's more of an alternate to the truth, really. The scriptures have actually been predicting someone to do these things for centuries. Isaiah 50, 5 and 6 predict a servant of the Lord who could say this with integrity. The Lord God has opened my ear, and I was not rebellious. I turned not backward I gave my back to those who strike and my cheeks to those who pull out the beard. I hid not my face from disgrace and spitting. Sounds a lot like Jesus, right? And three times in Mark's gospel, Jesus has predicted these sufferings. Three times he's told his disciples exactly why he's going to Jerusalem. The last one is in Mark 10. He says this, see, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man, that's Jesus, will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. That's Pilate, it's a Gentile. And they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him, and after three days... He will rise. It doesn't get much more specifically intentional than that, does it? Nothing that happens to Jesus in this story is because of his weakness or incompetence or ignorance. It is by the strength of his restraint that Jesus is bound and passed around. Nothing happens to Jesus. He is first the preeminent one. They all said it. He's the king. He doesn't need to take anything. It's all his. He made it all. He made 
the thorns. He made the trees. He is the word we refuse to believe. He made the shellfish that were used to dye the cloak. He made the sun so that it would shine and reflect off this dye in such a way that the eyes of humans that he made would see purple. He hid the shellfish under the sea so that they would be rare. Only royals could afford them. They're all his. Purple is his. Royalty is his. We think of kings wearing crowns because Jesus wears a crown. We think of kings on thrones because Jesus is on the throne. He is the standard. His reflected shadow is what we are all aspiring to as we grope to be gods in this dark world. He is the true king. He doesn't have to take anything because it all belongs to him. Your next breath belongs to him. Go ahead, take it. Take another, he's good. He shares, he's generous, he is love. Behold your king, Pilate says in John. Behold the man, he is not a wall, keeping you from getting what is truly satisfying life. He's the door. He's the way, the truth, and the life. He's the gate. See how he has opened to you. He did not count equality with God as something he needed to anxiously cling to while we were all trying to swipe it from him. He stepped out into the cursed land following Adam and Eve. Where are you, man and woman? He calls in love after humanity. He took on flesh to draw near, and we ripped the flesh right off his back. We rebel sons reject being in the presence of God to be in the place of God every time. Oh, we are the worst. But we are not cursed. God's righteous judgment is reversed, placed on the head of he who is first. Oh, we are the worst. But we are not cursed. So rejoice. The rebel son is delivered from death. The real son of the father is innocent and executed. The rebel son of the father is guilty and released. How simple and sweet is the good news of great joy we've been entrusted with. Jesus is the king, the Christ, come to save us from our sins. Believe it. He is delivered to death. We are delivered from death. So rejoice. It's true. You're not going to die for your sins. Jesus already did. You're going to die, but not for your sins. Like Jesus, you're going to rise into everlasting life with God. So rejoice. As Russell Moore said, let us eat, drink, and be merry. For yesterday, we were dead. The simple joy of the gospel is yours wherever you go and whatever happens to you. But I know this can be a little challenging. It all seems too good to be true. Nothing's that simple. I can't just rejoice. I've got all these other things going on in life, all these other problems that aren't working out, all these things going wrong in life. I just want to say to you briefly, you know that this is your biggest problem in life, right? Your treason against the creator king is the problem to end all problems. It's the comet. It's the apocalypse. It's coming to earth. All your other problems, you got to leave the house and it's leaky sink and the kids that won't do the thing and the boss you don't like, you just got to run. This is the problem to end all problems. The judgment of death is your biggest problem in life and your biggest problem problem in life has been taken care of, so you can actually rejoice in this now, today. Some of us, we've done terrible things. We've rebelled, some of us have rebelled harder and longer than others in the room, and you're hesitant to rejoice because you feel like, I'm guilty, I'm worse. Regardless of what God says, you know what you've done, you look at what you've done, you say, I'm the worst. And you look at all that's not going well in your life and you say, I'm cursed. It's not going well because I'm the worst, I'm cursed. 
It's hopeless. I ought to die. God must have made a mistake. I've done terrible things. You realize, I, look, I know what it is to be in that prison cell of guilt, but, but you realize that rejecting what God says is true is what led you into the prison cell of guilt in the first place, right? And now, God says it is true that you are forgiven. It doesn't really matter what you think you deserve. The wrath of God, condemnation, the curse, they don't report to you. You're not the king. You're not the judge. Imagine a prison guard coming to release Barabbas. Barabbas says, oh, you must be mistaken. I killed a man. I, I tried to, to steal the crown from the king and overthrow him. You, you're supposed to be executing me. And the guard would say, yes, you did those things. I saw it. It was bad. But I can't execute you. The king said to release you. And I'm a man under his authority, not yours. His word is law, not yours. And he says you're free, so you are free. Jesus came to bear witness about the truth. And this truth will set you free. Jesus is the king. And he is good. We don't need to try to steal the throne from him. And it's better this way. It's not just that it has to be this way, so submit. It's better this way. Satan is a liar. He's the father of lies. He's the one who said life would be better, spitting out God's word and taking what isn't yours. He's the one who said it was better to be in the place of God rather than in the presence of God. It's a lie. He made it up. It's not better. Jesus is king, and he's good. We're not, and it's better that way. Look at how well he loves us. We need to stop rejecting what God says is true and receive it. This is it's called repentance. As Jesus announced at the beginning of his ministry, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the good news. We can lift our eyes off the chains of what we've done and what's going on. We can look at Christ, the word of God, the truth that sets us free. Take our fingers out of our ears and hear his redeeming words. The first command in the garden was, do not take and eat of the tree. And Adam and Eve, all of us, we failed to listen and obey, and all was cursed. But there's a new command that's here, and with the Holy Spirit we can obey. Hear it. Take and eat. My body is broken for you. So just do take and eat the Lamb of God on this Passover feast of deliverance. His blood is on the doorposts. The angel of death has come and gone. He's not coming back for you. He saw the blood on the doorpost and he passed over. You can walk right out of that prison cell, Barabbas, son of the father. Yes, you rebelled. Yes, you were guilty. And also, yes, the king paid the penalty. Yes, you are forgiven. We can believe God's word on this. His word never failed us. We failed to believe it, but now we have the Holy Spirit. Pray that he would unstop our ears and help us hear the truth and believe. Hear these truths. Romans 8.1. There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Believe it. It's true. 2 Corinthians 5.21, for our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. This is God's word. Believe it, it's true. Back to Galatians again, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. We are the worst. We are not cursed. We can rejoice. Lastly, look at this this kingdom. Jesus is delivered to death. We are delivered from death. Believe it, it's true. The simple joy of the gospel is ours, but it's also a sustainable joy. I want to point out this last thing. If Jesus is truly the king, why does no one recognize him? Why does no one recognize him as a king? Well, part of the reason is he's not fighting at all. He's not anxiously defending his throne or his kingdom. So they assume he has no kingdom worth defending. But it's actually just not under any threat. 
from the priests or Pilate or the people. It's a kingdom that is not of this world, as Jesus says in John. And we have been delivered, not just from death, but as Colossians 1 to 13 and 14 says, he has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. And this is important because unlike Barabbas, we're not just set free for a second chance in life to do better. We're delivered into Christ's kingdom that is not of this world in which we have an unfading crown of glory and the inheritance of the son of the king. It is sure and certain as is God's word. But as is clearly demonstrated in this passage, the kingdom of this world and the kingdom of the Christ don't always align. In fact, they are often, but not always opposites, upside down at odds with one another. Why bring this up? Well, 1 Peter 2, 18-25, it says this. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle masters, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing. When mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure, but if when you do good and suffer for it and endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. Jesus suffered unjustly in this passage, and he did so for us in our place, but also as an example so that we might follow in his steps. So it's important that we know, as those who've been joyously delivered from our death sentence, that we have been safely delivered into the kingdom of the beloved Son. And in that kingdom, we have a crown and inheritance, but the entities of this world might not always recognize that the kingdoms don't always overlap. It might look like this. The governing authorities in the kingdom of this world, like in this passage, might not recognize our citizenship in Christ's kingdom, and they might not understand that our allegiance and behavior is ultimately to him. So we might, like Peter, and like Paul, like many Christians throughout the world today and through the centuries, we might find ourselves having to sing the simple joy of the gospel while in a prison cell in the kingdom of this world. But we are utterly free in the kingdom of Christ. The moral police, religious elite, the kingdom of this world may or may not recognize the righteousness we have from Christ and might accuse us of various faults and failings, but the simple joy of having Christ's righteousness will sing on as we are mocked as those on the wrong side of the history of the world. The general public of the world, the people, crowds, they may or may not recognize the power of Christ to get them what they want. And their interests in the things we do may plummet. Neighbors may mock our progress and abandon our programs, but the simple joy of our mustard seed kingdom will sing on. The soldiers, the king of the world, they may beat us, may torture us, may tear us limb from limb, but they cannot destroy the kingdom that cannot be shaken, nor our citizenship therein. And so they cannot ultimately steal our simple joy of deliverance. All these things would be unjust. They would all be suffering. We don't have to wish for it. We don't have to seek it out. And if providentially a way out is given, we, we can take it. But for many Christians throughout history and around the globe, there has not been a way out. And their unjust suffering is a gracious thing in the sight of God because they were following in Jesus' steps through death into life everlasting, he passed. We follow him there. He knows each step on the path. He knows each suffering, physical pain, relational rejection, utter injustice. He knows all the pains and strains of this cursed life that we live, but he has chosen to know the cursed death. And so we will never know it. 
we will pass right through. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed, for you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. How can you have joy while suffering unjustly by following Christ's example of entrusting yourself to him who judges justly? Do not trust the world's judgment of you any more than you do your, your own. It'll probably be wrong, unjust, suffering. Yet it's a gracious thing in the sight of God because Jesus made it so. Our greatest wound has been healed. Our biggest problem in life has been taken away. That simple joy remains even in unjust suffering. You might be scared, but as the Proverbs say, you don't have to put on a bold face. You'll just look like a fool. But the wise man establishes his steps. Know that your next step is following Jesus. In conclusion, it's the question Jesus asked. You've said so. Is Jesus the true king? Or is he a cruel king who stands in between us and what we want? Or is he a, a weak teacher who doesn't really change much in the world? Is he an incompetent savior who leaves us cursed, can't deliver? Or is he who he says he is, the king of the Jews who delivers on all the promises given to Israel through Abraham and David and the prophets to be home and whole with the Lord, and he delivers them on such a grand and glorious scale that we can barely see it and hardly dare believe it. He is that king. We say so every week here. We make this good confession. The application is to believe it and all its implications. Keep believing it when the world says otherwise. Keep believing it when the liar says otherwise. Keep making the good confession that Jesus is Lord. And keep rejoicing. Jesus is the true king. Let us keep saying so. Let's pray together. Gracious Father, your word is truth. Your word is truth. And your truth sets us free. We believe. Help our unbelief. In the name of the true King, Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen.